like it was as easy as going on holiday. Like it was, it wasn't hard. You know, there was no process, no interviews. Like, oh, you want to go, Crunch? Bang. When I ran away, there was I went to so many different places, doing what I was doing, running away from home and going to these like trap houses, as it was called. I remember being in there, and there'd be certain times it'd hit me, and I'd be thinking like, what does? I'm Anne Dibbon. And I'm Julie Tattersall. I'm Bev Evans, and this is Unexpected Turns. Hello and welcome. Today, we talk to Prusé Nocker, who somehow went from county drugs runner to national champion. How did that happen? Listen on and find out. Nice to meet you, Bev. How are you this morning? Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. Woke up feeling good, you know, ready. I was got training later, actually. So, yeah, just literally woke up. It's ready for the day as usual. Good, good. It's a lovely day here, actually. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to get out and do some walking as well with my dog. So. Oh, nice. Yeah, does you good, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. To get out and do some exercise. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. It's definitely, I feel like exercise is a very important thing. You know, it's needed. Even walks, even whatever you do, just getting out there is important. Yes, sure. it is important. And you're mm-hmm. a top boxer, Prise. Mm-hmm. I know you've had a lot going on with that, and that's that's what you'll be training for later. Yeah. Could you perhaps tell us how you got into that boxing in the first place? Because it's it's not a sport you would instantly think of. You'd think of like football or how did you get into this boxing? Um. So the way I got into boxing um originally was uh, my dad actually used to box himself, and um I remember. I used to play football, I used to play rugby, I tried badminton, I tried quite a lot of sports, but it was, I just never took to it, like I never would watch them, I would never watch the sports, um, I never really had a passion for it, I was just doing it because everyone else was kind of doing it, but I remember when I walked into a boxing gym for the first time, I remember just the feeling of that hard work, I remember doing 10 sit-ups, and those 10 sit-ups were like probably one of the hardest exercises I've done at that time. Yeah. And I remember the feeling that I got from doing that workout was like, wow, like I'm enjoying this. Even though it was quite hard and it was very intensive, the feelings I would get afterwards was what egged me on to like see if I could actually try boxing and see if it was for me. Sure. So yeah, it was quite yeah, it was quite different. And how how old were you then? I believe I was like 16, 17, 16, 17, yeah. Yeah. Although you mentioned you'd um, done football and everything else like that earlier, mm. you hadn't you hadn't done sport for quite a long time, had you? Because you'd you'd got involved in other things. Do you want to? Yeah, 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 for sure, yeah. So before I got into boxing, um, so it's like I used to run away from home quite a lot. So I got involved in like um, county lines, which is basically like when kids from like young kids, it could be any area, they like, they meet other um, like older gang members and older people and they go like sell class A drugs for them across the country. So at that point, so before I actually got into boxing, there was a period of my life where I was like running away for weeks at time, ran away for a month. I was just leaving home. No one knew where, no one knew where I was and that's what I was going to do and it was very like reflecting backwards it's like at the time it was like I enjoyed it which is quite weird to say but when you live when you reflect outwards you realize that you was being groomed I was groomed yeah you know um the danger I put myself in 
you know, the danger I put my loved ones in, and it's yeah, it's very, very crazy experience that I lived previous previously. How was that for your family, Christy, with you running away from home? You know, how did they react to that? Um, it's because when I ran away from home, um, for a month, at like five weeks, I remember coming back home, and um, because I was avoiding their calls, I wasn't picking up, and I remember when I came home. I was told that no one in my house could eat, like my little brother, my little sister. No one could eat properly. Everyone was crying every night. And when I was like, only when I came back and I heard that I realised what I was doing to them and the damage that I was doing. But when I was out running wild, I didn't really, I wasn't really caring about other people. But no. I came home and everyone couldn't eat. People couldn't sleep because no one knew if I was alive or, or if I was safe. But yeah. Sure. They didn't know what you were doing, or did they know you were involved with these gangs? No, no, no one knew what I was doing. I've come, I come from a, um, so I've really, I was raised in a Christian household. So someone, someone running away and like selling class A drugs is like, I believe my parents probably couldn't even fathom that, that that's what I was doing. You know, if it was any, if, if it was anything at all, it was probably like I was just running away to a friend's house, but right. they probably, and my parents weren't born in this country. So I don't think, like, for example, me, I'd be able to pick up on the signs if someone was doing that, but their life experience was a lot different. So when I got involved in it, I don't think, and I didn't make it particularly clear, you know, I was just coming home and going, and there was no really real signs for them to kind of see, oh, he's involved in this. Was religion a big part of your life growing up? You know, for your parents, did they, they go to church regularly? Yeah, definitely, I'd say like I grew up in a Christian household and I think that has always been an integral part of who I am and like what I do and um, I remember B when I was doing what I was doing running away from home and going to these like trap houses as it was called I remember being in there and there'd be certain times it hit me and I'd be thinking like what does what would God be thinking of me right now you know me gaining profit of people's addiction or you know me like basically dehumanizing these people for a profit because when you're doing that that's what you kind of have to do because if you're with someone who's using crack or using heroin if you put if you like make if you humanize them it's going to make it very hard to make money off them because then you're going to have like sympathy for them you're going to you're going to like have emotion towards towards them so a lot of people what they do they like they dehumanize them they call them crackheads they call them nitties they try to take away that human side to them yeah. so it makes it easier to do so yeah. because of how I was raised there'll be certain times where I'll be there and I'll be kind of be thinking about like I know what I'm doing is wrong like I know that how I was raised and the morals that I have that's been installed into me mm. this goes yeah. against it and I think growing up in a Christian household and going to church from young that's what played a big part in me me wanting to change my life as well because I was like the life that I'm living is just it's not worth it, you know. Seeing people go to jail, you know, seeing people get hurt, it just, just it's an experience that it's just not worth living. So you had that moment where, you know, that concern and worry for your parents and the way you were brought up mm -hmm. that made you want to change your life, turn your life around. Absolutely, absolutely, because I just I remember reflect. I remember like growing up from young that my dad, when I'd get in trouble at school, my dad would be like to me, "Do you want to be a loser? Like, do you want to be a loser?" 
and that's something that resonated with me for ages because it's like being a loser was not what I wanted to be and I come my dad's a very strong father I have a very like strong father figure like in my house and I think that played a huge impact into it so when I came home from when I came home from running away I just thought like enough is enough you know I've caused my family a lot of pain I've been through a lot of trauma you know while I was doing it I got held hostage you know I went through a lot of traumatic experiences while I was doing county lines and I just thought I've been given I've been given a lifeline you know I've got involved in this very dangerous game I haven't been arrested never didn't get violently assaulted or anything that usually that's what usually happens so I thought this is my chance to break away from it because if I don't then I'll suffer the consequences of that lifestyle. How long were you involved with the county lines then? It was about 18 months wasn't it? Yeah yeah it was about 18 months it was about 18 months so there was like many periods within those 18 months where I was just leaving home for weeks at a time sometimes it was in London sometimes it was in like Bournemouth I went to Bournemouth I went to Kent um went to Bournemouth, I went to Kent, I went to Woking, I went to Guildford, I went to so many places um, and just like, and I, but I loved it, it's weird, like when I was living that lifestyle, like the recognition I got at the time from peers that I went to school with, it's the recognition that you, they make you think that you're doing something special because when I was doing it, it wasn't, it was unheard of, you know, a lot of the media right now has like, there's a big kind of presence about it. Yeah. But when I was doing it, there was no presence on it so it was one of those things that if you knew someone who was doing it it was a big thing so yeah when I reflect back it was just like there was not like there's not a lot of there wasn't a lot of support back then I'd say because it was very unheard of no but as to now there kind of is like so how easy Priscilla was it for you to step away from that you know to leave that behind you know were they were you pressured to stay and continue working and and doing for these people or so for me it was it sounds it sounds like it was so easy for me to step away it's it was so easy for me to step away because when I finally returned home from like running away I had nightmares for a week so the nightmares that I had were very it's 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 the kind of it was the kind of nightmares you wake up in cold sweats and at the time I didn't realize why I was having those nightmares but I remember I had people come looking to me, come look for me in my house. I was held hostage. You know, there was many times I had to try and evade the police. And I think when I came back into a safe environment, yeah, my body was, my mind, my body, my subconscious was just processing what I just happened because I don't think I had a chance to then. And when I came back, I just, I had, it, I knew I had two choices. It was very clear. Um, I either continue what I'm doing and go to prison or end up dead or I literally stopped what I was doing right then and there and it was it was easy I'd say because I just weighed up the two and because of the experience that I just had I thought no this is obviously the the better option for sure. You say you were held hostage that wasn't in your own home though was it you were held hostage you were held can you just tell us a bit about that when you were held hostage because I remember that was quite frightening. Yeah for sure I remember um, I was in Bournemouth at this particular point and um obviously when you're doing county lines in this particular area um it was a predominantly white area so when i went there the person that i was working for said listen you can't go to the shops especially because i was how, how i was dressed 
he can't go to the shop, sends the crackhead um, to go to the shop for you um, if you want anything, because the last two people that went, the police followed them back to the house. So I was always in this house at this particular place. Um, and the crackhead's name, um, I don't even like calling him that, but his name was Steve. And um, so Steve would be the person who would, I'd give him the drugs, he'd go out, sell it and bring me back the money. So um, I didn't have a phone, like a smartphone back then. I had like a, a brick phone. So when I was in this house, this flat, I remember hearing that there was a lot of robberies would go on. And this is, um, robberies are very associated with county lands. You know, it's some of this big boy stuff, you know, it's class A, there's a lot of money that's in it. So I'd always hear about people running, running up into people's homes to rob them, you know, people getting stuck up. I never experienced it, so I never really took it into consideration. So at this particular house um, with Steve, I remember, because I didn't have a phone, the timeline was quite hard, but I believe it was like five days. But throughout those five days, I remember hearing a bit more than I usually do that people have run up into this house. And I was like, oh, what, people have actually come into this house to rob people? And that's something that I never experienced at the other houses in particular. So one night, one night on the fifth night, I believe it was, I've given Steve the drugs um, and he's gone out, he's gone back, he's gone out. And then he comes back in with three big guys, uh, big black guys. And um, I've got up, I'm like, what's going on? You know, like, what are you lot doing in here? And the main guy was like, listen, calm down. Like, it's all right. You know, we just come here to cut up some food, you know, cut up the drugs and we're going to be on our way. But obviously, when they was talking to me like that, um, I could see they were like looking around the living room and the kitchen to try to see, but obviously scoping the place. So um, they've left the room. They've gone into a. They've left the living room, gone into a room, shut the door. So it was Steve. Steve's gone with them. So at this point, I've stood up and I'm like, I'm looking for an exit. I'm trying to look at windows, trying to trying to see. Wait, what what can I do? And then at that moment, I had a realization. I right, course cool, on. You know, there's, I can't run. There's one way in, one way out. I'm on, like, the fourth story of a building. If I jump, I'm going to break my legs. Like, there's no escape at this point. So they come back in, and the guy pulls out a knife from me. He's like, listen, this is a stick-up. So he tells me to get up, and then he starts, like, questioning me. So when he tells me to get up, I wasn't, it's cr I wasn't scared because I knew what was about to happen. So I was kind of mentally prepared for it. So he's told me to get up, and he's like, where are you from? So he questions me where I'm from. I make up an area, but it's crazy. The area that I said, I think he had problems with people in that area. So he's like, what, you're from this area? So instead of saying my original area, I've said somewhere else, but it turns out he had a problem with people there. I was like, no, 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 I just um, lived there. And then he's like, so who are you working for? And I was like, oh, um, same thing. The guy that I'm working for lives there, but he's not part of that. We ain't part of that. We just kind of live in that area. So then he asked me, where are the money and the drugs? Because when you're doing county lines, um, you either have the money and drugs, or you have the drugs or just the money because you're selling it and getting the money. But Steve, um, one day I was speaking to him, he told me, put the money, hide the money somewhere in his house because if the police come in, raid the house, he can just say that he was saving it. And usually I'll never listen to a crackhead because, you know, there, you can't trust them. You couldn't trust them. You know, they're 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 motivated by the drugs. So anything they do is for that. So they could rob you. You know, they could 
and pray you whatever but I thought I listened to what he said it made sense so I had three grand and I stashed it in like some underneath covered place so the guy's like where's the stuff I've just emptied my pockets I've gone I ain't got nothing here knowing that I've got three grand stashed away Steve knew as well so the guy's pressuring me I remember there was a, uh, a Jamaican guy at the back very thick um, yardy accent and he's threatening me he's like listen if you're lying to us we're gonna get done and I'm like listen I ain't got anything you know I've just been working the guy that I was working for has come to collect it and then this moment always resonates with me because I remember Steve started to defend me and I think that's that's one of the pivotal parts where I've kind of realized what I was doing is wrong because he literally he didn't have to do that he stood he stood right in the like he stood on the side and he's gone to them listen he don't have anything you know his boss came to collect the stuff you know he's not lying he don't have anything so the guy took my phone and he's um going through my contacts trying to see what's there obviously there was nothing there because I kind of deleted my stuff anyway just in case police at the phone but that, that wouldn't have made a difference anyway so they're interrogating me they're threatening me and then after a while in the chaos of the situation I knew I had two options it was either fight and die or remain humble and try to like outsmart them and just be cool so I'm just being very humble and the guy's like I like you it's crazy the guy the main guy after all that interrogation he goes to me he's like you know I like you you know like you're not you're not crumbling you know I'm gonna come get you tomorrow morning so after that they leave the house and then I remember I didn't sleep that whole night obviously and I just got on the train straight back to London but yeah I didn't even go home I just went to continue what I was doing so that experience then didn't even change me immediately I still carried on with what I was doing I always reflect back and think about how Steve was the one who saved my life because he told me afterwards that they said that they'd split the profits with him if if I if I gave them anything so crazy experience wow mm -hmm. gosh do you know what happened to Steve or you dropped that life and stayed away stayed completely away you know stayed completely away and I think the, the main reason why Steve intervened and helped me because a lot of people abuse crackheads so they laugh at them they mock them you know they treat them like they're not human as I was saying yeah but me when I'd be in these I'd when I'd be in these like bandos and trap houses I'd buy them food like if I bought a pizza for myself I'd give them some you know I'd buy them food I wouldn't I wouldn't treat them like I wouldn't treat them as other people would you know and I think that's what helped me in that situation if I was abusive to him if I was ignoring him you know if I mistreated him he'd he'd probably take that into consideration and go against me but like I said because of my morals even though I shouldn't have given them food like I shouldn't be treating them that way I just felt like it's the right thing to do you know and it worked out I guess it's very hard but as you say it was a it was a pivotal moment but you mm -hmm. didn't get out straight away. So you went back. Why, you know, how did you get out in the end? What, like, got out um county lines completely? Or... Yeah. Mm -hmm. The way I got out is when I came home, when I finally decided to come home, um, I asked my mum, my I think, believe my, no one spoke to me for a while, honestly. Like, when I came home, no one spoke to me for a while. I understand why, but... 
when they finally decided to sit me down, I remember my mum asking me, um, have you got into any trouble? And instantly I kind of, I knew what she was saying, what she was talking about. And, um, but I went, no. And she was like, because I didn't want to scare them. I didn't really want to scare them at the time. Because if I had said yes, I know they would have started panicking and things, but I said no. And then obviously my mum's like to me, well, people came to the house looking for you. And I instantly knew what the situation was about because when I had run away, uh, I robbed some serious people of a lot of dough that run away with their money and drugs. But I didn't really think anything of it because like I said, I was just in the moment, didn't really care what I was doing, didn't think of the consequences. So she tells me, um, people came to the house looking for you. So one day she's at home, she hears a knock on the door, very, very like intensive knock on the door. So she goes to open the door and there's two people there and they go, where's Prise? You know, where's Prise? Does Prise live here? And my mum said that when she looked at them, she, she just sensed something was completely wrong. It was like there was, they were there on a mission. Like something, their, their demeanour, their aura, how they were standing, the, how they were talking, everything was completely off. So once again, they're pressuring my mum, they're saying, does Prise live here? Does he live here? I'm looking for a priest, does he live at this address? And then, like I said, my mum felt something in her spirit, felt something was wrong. And then she said, there's no priest who lives here and slammed the door on them. And then we never, ever heard about that ever again. But reflecting on that, I think I only really started to reflect properly on it as I got older and fully understood how, how much danger I had put everyone in my house in. Sure. You know, because... I was the one who robbed that guy of his stuff, but if something was going to happen, I wouldn't even have dealt with it. Nothing would have happened to me because I was out. Yeah. But my mum, my dad, my brother, my sister, they were all in the house. So I put my family in some serious danger there. And then I only realised that as I got older, how, how bad that was. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're talking about this now. And I mean, this is, mm. this is several years later. Is it four years late? Five years later, isn't it now? How happy are you talking about this, knowing that somebody might hear what you're saying? It's good because I've done a lot of um, I've done a lot of youth work. You know, I've gone into schools and told my story and spoke to a lot of young people, and I never realised it at the time, but I have a lot of influence over these young people. And when I told them my story and told them what I've achieved, they it give them a different. They see differently, you know. And before talking about my story, I was ashamed, I was embarrassed, you know. But the reason why is because I had changed my my whole mentality of it before. I thought it was cool, you know, I thought it was a good thing, you know. I was I thought it was an impressive thing. But as I started to change my friendship circle, change my mindset, you know, yeah. dive into my belief with God more, I realised that it was an embarrassing thing. So I was very reluctant to talk to people about it because even though other people saw it as a success, you've come from this to this. I thought and saw it as like, I don't want to talk about that chapter of my life. I just want to forget it. But then when I realised the impact and there's people out there who I could help with my story, I became more open to talking about it. Yeah, that's important, I think, to give mm-hmm. back in that way. So how does boxing fit, fit into all of this now? How does that impact on your life at the moment? Boxing gives me boxing gives me a purpose because I feel I feel like I'm a very purpose driven person, you know, and that's that's 
the feeling I get when I'm winning, the feeling what that I get that I'm when I'm training, everything as a collective, it just motivates me to be better every day. Not just in boxing, but in every aspect of my life. You know, just having that discipline, the confidence, and um, my mentality, my perseverance. You know, everything that I've achieved in boxing, everything I've done, it has affected every other area of my life. And it's like when I talk now, I'm not just talking. Before I wasn't too sure if I could do something, but now you can't convince me otherwise. I know I'm 100% sure if I want to do something and I set my mind to it, I'm going to achieve it. Even if I fail, I'll keep persevering until I get it. So boxing has definitely played a big part into it, just to have that 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 kind of discipline, that kind of schedule, you know, that going through hard things to, to get an outcome, you know, I truly believe makes a person better. And you achieved a lot in a very short time. You went starting boxing at 16 to becoming national yeah. champion three years later. Yeah, definitely, definitely. Oh, well done. It was very crazy that, yeah, very. That's amazing. Well done, yeah, sure. No, thank you, thank you. Oh. Quite, and you were undefeated for a record number of bouts as well after that. Yeah, I went... I went 19 fights undefeated and, and I recently lost my, my first my first fight and it was painful, I'll be totally honest. But the reason I'm sure. I'm a winner, you know, I'm in I'm in this to win. So tasting my first defeat since I've started, um at at first it was hard, you know. There's even some days now I'm like caught in a daze and a, a daydream about it, but I realized that this is the beginning, you know, this ain't the end, you know. Exactly. So, mm -hmm. so what does a normal day like for you now, Prisa? You know, with regards to training and things. Mm. Well, how, how does that work for you? So I train multiple times a day. So my training schedule: I train six six days a week. So Monday, I wake up and go for a five k run. Um, after that, in the evening, Monday evening, I've got my boxing session. Tuesday, I could have sparring or um, conditioning. Wednesday I have sparring, Thursday I go for my long run and a conditioning session, Friday I have a boxing technical session and then Saturday I have a session at the gym with my coach and then Sunday is like um, my rest day but I've got, the reason why I'm able to do that, I've got a lot of support um, like um, Wayne Maguire, he's a guy who um, sponsors me and helps me with my training so my coaches, there's a lot of people who who play a pivotal role in me allow me being able to to train like that oh yeah team effort sure yeah and you've got a job as well you fit this all around your daytime job too yeah yeah i did my daytime job i love my daytime job you know um it's very flexible you know um my managers and everyone they know that i do the boxing as well so they it's it just works around it quite easy you know kind of thing so everything everything right now boxing is like the center but everything kind of just orbits around it but i make it work i make it work yeah lots of good lots of good people around you and lots of support definitely today is the day you obviously you know it's quite a difficult day today because you should have been in the final today definitely. for the national championship again yeah i would have been in the the finals i would have been in the finals of the, the national championships today uh, but obviously, unfortunately, like I said, I lost my, my first fight um, prior. But, you know, is I've realised that complaining and kicking up a fuss, it doesn't change stuff. The only thing I can do is 
get better and look forward to the future. And it is, it is very hard because it's, it's, a lot of people have told me, you know, um, you know, losing is where the begin is where it starts. But my mindset has always been in boxing. You need to win, mm. you know. And like I said, I've never lost. So I think maybe if I'd lost previously, it'd be different. But because it's my first defeat and not in an arrogant way, because I train hard, I put the work in. But sometimes I think I expect I should just win. You know, so I should just yeah. Just, it, I'm just so used to winning that is yo yeah. Turn up to the fight, we won, and that's what the feeling was. We turn up, win, go home. Turn up, win, go home. Now, for the first time, oh, we haven't got it. It's a whole. Even my coaches, for everyone, it's just a it's a new experience, but it's part of it. I mean, it's really impressive because I spoke to you the day after, and what's really mm-hmm. impressive, you'd had this, these wins for these last three years, mm-hmm. but what was so impressive was. After you'd lost, when I spoke to you, yes, you were absolutely devastated, but you already had a plan going forward about what you were going to do yeah. next. But, and I was so impressed. I mean, when my son wasn't picked for the Olympics, it took him mm-hmm. the best part of a week to come to mm-hmm. a plan as to what you know he was going to do going forward. And you were already on that with your plan sorted the very next day. That shows such strength of mind. No, thank you, Anne. Thank you, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's tough, as you say, to lose mm-hmm. because that's not the mentality. So, so yeah, what do you draw on to get through those those sort of times then? When you, well, you've not had many of them, but you know, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, how did you cope? How did you how did you manage that those feelings? I say the best way I cope, yeah, my support system. You know, I came home. And everyone was like, you're still our champion. You know, my family, my oh. mum, my dad, you know, everyone was telling me, you know, keep your courage, you know, don't let this define you. You know, everyone was so supportive. The love that I received, it, it was like, it was crazy, you know, because I felt me losing made me less of a champion or or less than I was. But to other people, they were like, you're still, you're still two-time London champion. You're still a national champion, you know, those achievements don't get taken away by no. one lot. I believe I draw, I drew closer to God, because everything happens for a reason, you know. And I, and it's crazy to see, but how I acted in defeat, I'm happy. Yeah. You know, um, I I congratulated my opponent, you know, because everyone's always going to be happy when they're winning and they're going to be professional and they're going to be nice. But when I lost, you know, I was very, I felt that I. I gave the best account of myself, you know, was very respectful towards my opponent, you know, and I think how someone is in defeat tape says a lot about them. Definitely. But it's just, yeah, I just had a, I had a good um, support network around me to kind of just keep my head up. Yeah. So I didn't really have time to, to just sit alone in a room and just be left alone. Everyone was kind of motivating me. No, that's being a true sportsman and a, a true mm-hmm. champion, you know, that's, that's absolutely right so what's the plan then going forward for you then i'd say the plan going forward definitely is to go into the elites um because i was boxing three two-minute rounds and with three two-minute rounds a lot of people just steaming they just come in trying to throw bombs there's not really a lot of there's not there's not people ain't really technical like that they're just going in there because it's a short time trying to take people's heads off and what i noticed because i was undefeated every fight that i was having in this competition, I was getting the best of every. I was I was getting the best version of people, 
but they were coming to me every fight. So every fight, someone was trying to take my head off. But it's because they knew I was a previous champion and I hadn't lost. So going into the, the elites, it will be three, three minutes. So the pace is a lot slower because there's more time. So you have to use your skills a bit more. You have to think more. And you can't just rush in because if you get tired, then it's over because you still have a longer round to continue. So definitely going to do the elites. And my plan is to get into Team GB. You know, oh. my ultimate goal since I've started boxing, I want to box, represent my country, you know, box for England. Oh, amazing. Travel the world competing. So, yeah, definitely. Look forward to that. Look forward <laughs> to seeing that name up. Definitely on that team list. No, for sure. We were talking about your future plans. Yeah, and and everything you're do, you're doing, are you on the periphery of the um, GB squad? Are they like involved with you? Or... No, they're not involved. Or is there any kind of talent pathway? Yeah, so basically, um, the way to do it, you've got to get to the final of the ADAs, which is like the most prestigious um, boxing tournament in the whole of England. So that will be next year, April. So if you get to the final, the two finalists get an assessment. However, getting an assessment doesn't actually guarantee you a place because um, GB have a very, they've got a certain style of boxing that they like. So the main thing is to get an assessment. But my style, I know, would be perfect for them because I'm very aggressive, I'm defensive, um, and I just, I've got the whole package. In the most, in the most humblest way, I know that <laughs> my style will be perfect for GB boxing. Can I ask you what weight do you fight at? So, um, I fight at, um, so previously, um, I was fighting at welterweight, but I moved up a division, so now I'm fighting at light middleweight. However, I believe I'm going to drop back um, to welterweight. Just, um, I think I'll be a bit more faster. I think I think I'll be a bit more spiteful, but it's, I fought heavier than, I fought at middleweight, which is quite heavier. So I've never really been out of my depth when it comes to weight, but I'm just going to see how I feel at welterweight. If not, because I've grown muscle development, I'll just fight at light middleweight. But yeah, might be moving down to welterweight in the near future. Okay. Wow. You must be very proud of everything that you've accomplished so far. Yeah, it's it's hard because I'm, um, I am proud, but because I feel like I'm always on go, like I'm always like working and it's always on to the next especially even with boxing it's one of those things where you win something but it's you're planning for the next so only when you have time to sit down and reflect can you really be be proud but yeah I'm very proud of my achievements you know I feel like I've come a long way um but then it's always that thing I feel like I've still got a long long way to go you know I still like there's more out there that I'm gonna do and that I'm gonna achieve so this is just I'll celebrate but then on to the next you know so I don't get too complacent yeah. And just too caught up in the moment. Well, that's what's got you so far—the mm. fact that you're not complacent yeah. and you're carrying on. Can I ask a little bit about? You talked at the very beginning about you think you were groomed, really, so you didn't really realise you were being drawn into this gang situation. How did that come about early on that you were groomed? Did you have? Was that your friendship group, or what exactly? happen because it's you hear so often people just being drawn somehow or other into these situations and as you say you came from a very god-faring family you've got a strong family how did you get drawn into that circle um 
when it comes in terms of grooming, I never thought I ever, I, I was very reluctant that I was groomed. Like, even when someone told me, um, a youth worker, an older youth worker told me when I was talking about my story that I was being, I was like, no, nah, I wasn't. You know, like, I did everything that I wanted to do myself, you know. I was very much in control. But when he explained it to me with certain things, like the guy that I was working for at the time saying, oh, he'll look after me, he'll buy me things and that, me wanting that, you know, um, the way he was treating me, being kind to me. But then at the same time, he's not, he's not where, like when I was going to sell drugs, he wasn't there. He was never at risk. It was me. Um, yeah. But he'd look after me and, and I never thought it was grooming until I really sat back and looked properly and thought, yeah, I was groomed. Even though I didn't think at the time, I thought I was in control. It was grooming. And the way I got into it was um, through connections. You know, like I said, I was, my friendship group, it's, it's very easy to go country. It's not, it's not hard. You probably know someone who knows someone who, who could do that. And in my situation, the area I grew up in, Croydon, the, the, the connections I made, the people I knew, it was as it was as easy like it was as easy as going on holiday like it was it wasn't hard you know there was no process no interviews like oh you want to go country bang how long do you want to go for as simple as that and when I ran away there was I went to so many different places in that duration and that's how easy it was I'd go one place come back go another place come back like it wasn't it wasn't hard at all but I think a lot of it has to do with um the people you hang around. You know, if you're hanging around with people who are into drug dealing, you know, into making illicit money, it's going to be easier, you know, it's going to be easier to get into it. And I think for me, that was, that played a huge part. So how did you get to hanging around? I mean, I know I spoke to somebody else mm. and he, he said, he said, oh, he says, the, I was just listening to the people behind me on the school bus. And he says, and then I got talking to them and then mm. suddenly I was in it. Mm. I mean, how, how did that? And he dropped one friendship group and moved to that friendship group. Mm. How how did that work for you? Um, same sort of similar situation, you know. Like I said, I was very sportive growing up. Um, even like I played for a lot of football, played a lot of sports. But as soon as my friendship group kind of switched, I started hanging around with people smoking, you know, uh, people who were selling weed at the time, and just that flip, just like that. I've gone from being around sportive people who. Every day after school, are playing football. Every day after school, who are just like in the gym, to hang around with people who every day after school were smoking. You know, every after day school, talking about money, talking about talking about shotting. You know, that's what became my life. And I feel like me smoking was the gateway into that path, into that lifestyle. Because if I never started smoking, I would have never hang around with certain people. But it's just crazy because at the time. I thought it, I thought we was grown. I think we thought we was grown. Yeah. Like the way we talk about the money, talk about certain things. I thought we was like adults, but we was like kids. You know, we didn't have a clue what we was doing, or probably probably like we didn't really understand fully what we was getting into at the time. You know. No, I I I think I think that's so easy to do. It's when you're, you know, when you are growing up, you're always trying to be older than you are. I mean, I know I'm old now, but I can still remember that feeling of thinking oh I'm grown up now mm. I'm I'm all at 14. Mm. No <laughs> literally exactly says. like that it was exactly like that you just you're growing up you think you're grown but in reality you're not you know you haven't even experienced life yet to be honest. What would you say to somebody that's kind of on the edges on that situation 
how would you suggest that they kind of avoid getting drawn into as you say smoking weed and then dealing weed and then the first thing out of everything i'd say is your friendship group because i feel like that is such a key part into what you do it makes sense you know the five people you hang around with you're going to be like and i think if you even want to stay away from that lifestyle mm. making sure you have people who are like-minded around you people who want to stay away from that kind of stuff people who are against that kind of stuff you know people who and i'd say sport as well sport is a is a huge thing you know a lot of people that i know they grew up playing football they stopped it and they went down that road same thing with me when you're doing sport and you leave it kind of leaves a void you know you've got a lot of free time in your hands yeah you know as well as before i was go to school go have training come home now i don't have training now that you you're free you know yeah and i think that makes a big plays a big part I think, you know, like, as you say, and, and you are giving back and helping. I think it's great that you go in and and talk in, into schools and talk about your experiences. How did you get how did you get involved in that? So um I do it um so I talk in schools with um Turnstyle. So Turnstyle, so I've done it uh, the two organizations that are part of Gloves Not Guns and Turnstyle. Um so Turnstyle I go into Hampshire. So um schools in Hampshire and I meet obviously at risk youth and I tell them my story and then give them a, a boxing session and I just tell them the realities of that life because there's no sugarcoat in it you know I think I can't sugarcoat it I have to be raw with them have to be real about the realities of it and tell them my experience but I like to tell them that because there's still hope because if someone looked at me when I was doing it and said is there any hope for this kid you'd say no you know, people think, nah, he's going to be in jail. But the fact that I was able to turn it around, there's always a choice. And I think that's what I try to re reiterate when I'm giving my talk, that there's always choice. You know, there's always a choice to make. And it's in your hands what, what choice you're going to make because one choice is going to have some consequences, but other choice can lead to opportunities. And if I never made that choice to stop what I was doing and go into boxing, I would never be here right now, you know, with all that I've done. And what kind of response do you get from from the kids that you go and speak to? Um, it's it's crazy because I'm still getting used to it because I was it took me a while to get comfortable, like I said, talking talking about my story. But when I'm talking, seeing their seeing how engaged they are, you yeah. know, seeing their eyes, seeing how like the silence in the room, you know, seeing how their eyes are just stuck on me, not moving, and then afterwards them coming to me and telling me how you know it's like it's it's, it's 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 so it's so hard to describe because i never thought i had that i never thought that i had that in me to do that mm -hmm. you know i never thought i had that in me to influence people to to help people you know to give people advice but when they come after me and they want to see me the next week or they want to do boxing with me and it, it's it's a, it's a crazy feeling just till still to this day it's very hard for me to describe because it's an amazing feeling it's brilliant, mm -hmm. isn't it? Miss, if you just help that one person, just one person, you know, just make a difference, isn't it? By doing that, it's um, it's all worthwhile. Definitely, hundred percent, hundred percent. Just like just having impacted one person in that room is amazing, you know, because we're there just to impact lives. I think that's the main thing, you know. Tell my story and impact lives, and just leave people thinking. And the biggest thing I've taken from giving these talks is. 
how would like my life have been different if I had someone to give my talk to me yeah. before I got into that you know and I think that still it still plays a part of my mind because I'm like would it have changed me wouldn't it have impacted me but I think it would have you know I think it would have you know just to hear the realities of it but who knows you know who you knows? Know. I was very arrogant at the time you can never listen know. to no one no mm. and as you say you know you everything happens for a reason and you doing what you do now is it, so positive for these young people I'm sure you know you 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 will you know you will make a difference no oh, thank you thank you so much oh, thank you thank you uh, I think as you said earlier I think it's given you strength and determination to turn your life around and to mm. move on and make that GB team and get those titles. Oh, that's the plan. That's the plan. Hundred percent. You know, hundred percent. That minor, minor setback, but major, major comeback. You know, I can't wait to to get back into that ring. I can't wait to <laughs> go on to the next, the next stage of my my boxing career. Yeah, and it is as you say. It's how you deal with those setbacks that makes you stronger. Like your coach mm-hmm. told you, and I a hundred percent agree with that. This whole podcast is all about how people cope with setbacks and turn them into yeah. positives and that's exactly yeah. what you've done yeah no thank you so much i'm very impressed and thank you very very much for joining us Prusse. and i no worries. i will try and follow closely thank you thank you thank you Beverly. i appreciate you lot having me on here as well man it's been a pleasure for sure oh it's it's been great to talk to you you're very inspirational and i wish you every success in the future you deserve it. Thank you. Thank you, guys. I look forward to seeing that name there on that GB team list, definitely. <laughs> That's the plan. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thank you very much and enjoy the rest of your day and your training. Thank you, guys. I'll speak to you later. Bye, guys. Bye, Prince. Bye. Oh, he was lovely young man, wasn't he? Really nice. Uh, the thing that most impressed me was he spoke to me on... Sunday last week Sunday because he'd been saying oh you know I'll get together I've just got a few fights to do and then he rang me on Sunday and he literally he'd lost his fight the day before and already he'd gone home Sunday afternoon and he'd already made a plan for what he was going to do next and like I can remember you know when Jonathan same age roughly 21 didn't get picked for the Olympics. He went out drinking all night. And then it was three days before he'd written his complete plan of what he was going to do next. And Prusse had done that the very next day. Mm-hmm. I thought, God, you know, I mean, I know there's a bit of a difference between losing one fight and being put down as a reserve rather than actually going to the Olympics. But I just thought that was so impressive. I mean, it's it's that sporting mentality. We hope to see him in the Olympics sometime soon. And of course, huge thanks to you, our listeners. And we hope you'll join us next time when we talk to Max McDonald, whose life took an unexpected turn after he was arrested in Uganda. Until then, take care.